The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 90. Psalm number 90. And you probably remember studying this before, but the book of Psalms is divided up into into five books. And Psalm 90 starts book number four. And this is, from what we can tell, the oldest of all the Psalms. The title of it is helpful. It's titled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And this title gives us insight both into who wrote it and into what he wrote. So God used Moses to give us this Psalm and it gives us insight regarding prayer. In fact, Psalm Psalm 90 is one of just five psalms that are specifically designated as a prayer. And in this, God provides us with a prayer through Moses to help us know how to pray and to help us know the kinds of things that ought to be included in our praying. Follow along as I read the 90th Psalm. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with the flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they're like grass which groweth up, in the morning it flourisheth and groweth up, in the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath, we spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants, O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. I know this is a familiar psalm, and you can tell from just reading it that why this is titled both a salty and a sweet psalm, it has some of both in it. I know you're familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards. As a young man, somewhere around your age, in his his late teens, he was a well-known revivalist and theologian, but at that time in his life, he penned 70 resolutions, and these were to guide his spiritual growth throughout his life. Some of these resolutions are very practical. 
They related to matters like using his time, like eating properly. But some of his other resolutions, at least to our 21st century minds, might seem a bit gloomy and even morbid. Like Resolution 17, he said, Resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolution 9, he said, Resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Now, Edwards was reflecting the truths that were written in Psalm 90 about 3,500 years ago. And while we don't know exactly all the details for the setting of this psalm, because of its content, because of its connection with Moses, I think many rightly connect it to the time period in the wilderness, that time when a whole generation of Israelites were dying off. They were being buried because of their refusal to believe God and enter into the promised land, and that's found in Numbers chapter 14. But others think we can be more specific and say, well, maybe Numbers chapter 20 more specifically gives the background of this psalm. If you recall, in that chapter, Miriam, Moses' sister, dies, and then Moses himself disobeys God in striking the rock when he should have spoken to it, and then Aaron, Moses' brother, also dies. But if you picture this psalm, and maybe you noticed as we read through it, but this psalm really is like taking a walk on hilly terrain. We start off at this very lofty point, but then we quickly descend only to surface on another lofty peak at the end of the journey through the psalm. Isaac Taylor remarked on this psalm, the 90th psalm might be cited as perhaps the most sublime of human compositions, the deepest in feeling, the loftiest in theologic conception, the most magnificent in its imagery. And this is a great psalm, and it is God's word to us. And in it, God urges us to face the realities of life by seeking him in prayer. God urges us to face life's realities through prayer. And he urges us toward this with two truths from this psalm. The first truth is about the realities of life. This is the first uh, about two-thirds of the psalm, the realities of life. It discusses four realities. He first talks about God's eternality in the first two verses. He says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. And this idea of God being our dwelling place portrays the Lord as a refuge for us. He is our protection and our safety. He himself, God himself, is the sanctuary that you and I can go to to find protection and stability and sustenance. It's a key thought here that this psalm begins with the idea of our relationship with God because that alone is the bridge between life's sometimes harsh realities and the joy that is available in God. Now, there are some realities in this psalm that we'd rather not think about, but as those are dealt with, we have to remember that God is our anchor. In another place, in some of his final words, Moses would say this in Deuteronomy, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Now, God as our dwelling place would have been especially pertinent to the nation of Israel at this point in their history. Think about what they had just finished. They had just finished 40 years of a nomadic lifestyle. But God had been their home, and God would be their home. But isn't this also relevant for you and for me today? We live in times of economic instability. We live in times of national uncertainty. 
We live in times of international upheaval. We live in times of political change. But in that, let us be reminded that our refuge and our dwelling place is God. It's interesting that the very next psalm picks up on the same theme, and it begins with these words, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God and Him will I trust. It's also what Solomon spoke about in Proverbs chapter 18 when he said, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. And did you notice in Psalm 90 verse 1 that this is something true in all generations? Moses, from his standpoint, he could look back and he could see that, yes, this had been true for the nation of Israel. But he could keep looking back and say, yeah, that was true for Joseph and for Jacob and for Isaac and for Abraham and for Noah and for Enoch. God was their dwelling place. Abraham, he left Ur and he lived in tents, but God was his dwelling place. The nation of Israel, they had to leave Egypt and live in tents, but God was their dwelling place. And you, you and I might have lived in small apartments or rundown houses or a crowded dorm room or even had no place at all at times, but still God has been our dwelling place. Three millennia later, we can look back with joy and say, yes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Verse 2 continues and says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He is the creator, but he didn't begin to be when he created. When Genesis 1 begins with, in the beginning, God, that's talking about the beginning of space and matter and time, not the beginning of God. God was God before he created after he is created, and he'll still be God after he remakes his creation. If you think of on Friday, Pastor Burdick had that rope up here, and if you take that rope and just extend it infinitely that way and infinitely that way, no matter which way you go, if you go in that direction or that direction, as far as you can go, God is still God. You'll never find a place on that timeline where God is not God. That's why the prophet Isaiah says that he is one who inhabits eternity. In another psalm, we're told that God's years have no end. In a familiar verse in the New Testament, we hear the Lord say this, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. You should notice at the end of verse 2 of this psalm, it ends with these three words, Thou art God. This is a strong confession of faith. This one who created, this one who has been our dwelling place is God alone. And it is he alone who enables us to make sense of the sometimes harsh realities of life. And he begins to deal with those. He speaks of this reality of God's eternality, but then he speaks of the reality of man's frailty in the next few verses. Psalm 90 verse 3 captures this sobering concept. It says, thou turnest man to destruction. Essentially, all mankind is destined for dust. No matter what we put on our bodies or in our bodies or do to our bodies, they will decompose. They will be destroyed. We don't discount the importance of faithful stewardship of the bodies God has given to us. That matters. But the fact is, these bodies will die and decay no matter how long we spend on the treadmill, no matter how many visits we make to the weight room. Spurgeon summarized this verse well when he said, God resolves and man dissolves. 
This is one of the places in the psalm where we see another reflection of the early chapters of Genesis. It was back in Genesis 3.19, as judgment on man's sin that God said, referring to the ground, out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And notice how this psalm begins. He puts side by side these thoughts of God's eternality and man's frailty. And it emphasizes this great distance between us and God. It should cause us to reverence and honor him. It's really necessary to understand that difference, to have a right perspective on life, to have a right outlook on it. Verse 4 continues. Notice how he puts it. He says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Now that verse puts time in perspective. You remember that Peter echoed the same thought in 2 Peter. When he says, Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But to us, doesn't a thousand years seem like such a long time? When we think about a thousand years of human history, think about how much is encompassed in that, how many events, how many empires, how many personalities. But to God, that's just like a single day that moves by so quickly for us. The longest lifespan that we know of, of course, you learn this in Sunday school as Bible trivia, it's Methuselah. He lived 969 years. That's Seems like a really long time to us. Yes, it is. But to God, hey, that's less than a day. He didn't even make it to a thousand. Unless yesterday was some kind of momentous day for you, you probably don't recall a lot about it. It went by. It's gone now. But then he says in verse 4, as we read, it's like a watch in the night. A watch is not only a day, it's just a, a four-hour period of time. So it's one-sixth of a day. In verse 5, mankind's existence is also likened to sleep, which some of us want right now. But we come and go so quickly. But think about when we're really tired, how quickly that night of sleep passes. Isn't it true when you're really tired, that alarm clock goes off several hours after you've gone to sleep, and it seems like you just put your head on your pillow three seconds ago. And then in the rest of verse 5 and verse 6, he likens men to plants that come and go in a very rapid cycle. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, as we say. And if you notice in these verses how quickly the pictures are changing, the psalmist Moses jumps from one metaphor to the next, and it underscores the whole point of this section, life is frail and uncertain. But he mentions another reality of life connected to this, and that is not just man's frailty, but man's depravity. He says in verse 7, we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. As we look at these verses that deal with God's wrath, we should recall from another psalm that his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. So his anger is not the only thing that's true about God, but he is a God of holy wrath. Remember, this came about, according to Romans 5:12, because of man's sin. So death is not God's fault. It's simply God's judgment on man's sin. If Adam and Eve had walked in obedience, there would have been no death. So death traces its way back to sin. Verse 7 says that, that you and I are troubled by God's wrath. It's an interesting word. It's the same word used to describe Joseph's brothers when they found out that it was him. They were troubled at his presence. Yeah, they were greatly disturbed. They were terrified. And if you and I are prone to think that our sins are no big deal... God reminds us that our sins are before him in verse 8. 
Our iniquities, mine and yours, are right in front of this holy God. The second half of the verse states it even more strongly. It says, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Even the sins we think are secret or hidden are not. They're in plain view of God's face. Even when we're in private mode on our smartphones, God sees it clearly. What we think is hidden away in this dark closet somewhere, in reality, is illuminated by the blazing light of the presence of God. It is anything but hidden. And God knows us as we really are, not as we think we are, as we want to be, but as we are. But then he mentions a fourth reality here, and that is life's brevity. Look at verse 9. He says, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. So because of our sin, we are under God's wrath. And really, these verses here ought to be a welcome reminder to us because they show us sin for what it really is, the rottenness of it. Think about it. The book of Romans asks this in so many words. What lasting good has sin brought into your life? None. Sin always damages and destroys and devastates. And so we ought to welcome reminders like this and many other places in Scripture that show us what sin is all about. Because our flesh, Satan, and this world system that surrounds us all promise the opposite. They tell us that to live holy is to miss out. They tell us that obeying God is depriving yourself. David Wells has a great definition of worldliness. He says that worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. And we're surrounded by that all the time, and we need to hear God's voice so we see things as they really are, the reality of things. And may God help us to think clearly about it. And then he gives some numbers here in verse Verse number 10, the days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. Now remember Moses, you've studied his life, you remember that he himself lived to be 120 years old, so he lived to be six score. But he says here that wasn't normal. Even the 70 to 80 years that are mentioned here by Moses are certainly no guarantee. The fact is, no matter how young or old we are today, 2023 could still be the second number on any of our tombstones. Life expectancies um, vary from country to country. Currently in in the U.S., for men it's 73.2, for women it's 79.1 years. Two countries in Africa, Chad and Nigeria, they have the lowest life expectancies as of this year, both of them an average of under 54 years. But even if we're given a normal lifespan, whatever that is, He says in verse 10, the best part of it can sometimes be marked by toil. And those years, he says, are soon cut off and we fly away. The picture here is of a bird. You don't have to be a professional bird watcher to know how quickly birds can come and go. If you're trying to show someone, point a bird out to someone, you have to do it quickly and quietly because they can fly away so quickly. And he says, our lives are like that. Before you know it, they're gone. Our recent alumni homecoming, I talked to several um, peers, several students who expressed a similar idea. They said, you know, it seems like uh, just last week I was a student and now I have a child in college. But he says here in Psalm 90 that the reality of God's anger should cause us to reverence him. That's what he says in verse 11. Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. 
So two great truths in this psalm. The first are the realities of life. The second is the requests of the Lord. And there are five requests here. These realities of life, remember that God urges us in the light of these realities to seek him in prayer. They ought to move us to pray. And there are five requests that he teaches us that we should pray. The first request is our prayer should be to teach us. He says in verse 12, so teach us. In other words, in light of all this, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. There are two parts to this request. We, we should take into account how brief life really is. He just talked about that. But we shouldn't stop there. We should get wisdom from God. We pray, Lord, teach us the brevity of life. Teach us the wisdom that comes from you. That alone is the right response. Understand the right response to these realities is not despair, but it is dependence on God. Numbering our days does include the idea of seeing how small they are, but it also includes going beyond that and knowing how best to use these days we're given. We must realize how, how impoverished our own wisdom is. We must embrace God's wisdom. The heavenly wisdom that we need is described by James as the wisdom that's from above, that's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Paul spoke of it like this in Ephesians, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So God teaches us as we pursue him, as we build our relationship with him, as we seek him in scripture, we grow in his wisdom, we grow steadily, even if it's not remarkably. So he says, this is how we should pray. We should pray, Lord, teach us. We should also pray, Lord, restore us. Verse 13, he prays, return, O Lord, how long? Let it repent thee concerning thy servants. You should note the contrast between the, the word return here in verse 13 and back in verse 3. Back in verse 3, it was the return of judgment, but here it is the return of God with favor to his people. See, God's wrath doesn't have to be the whole story because God delights in showing compassion and favor. In fact, God prefers to show favor. All you have to do to know that for sure is simply look at the cross. The cross displays God's wrath that it might display God's favor. Moses here seems to be praying for a new beginning of sorts. A new beginning made possible because of God's compassion. I know there are some here who need a new beginning. And, and this passage encourages us that it is available through our compassionate and merciful God. Whether it's a new beginning in your walk with God or in your family or in, in some other area of your life. We, we should also keep in mind that the most important work of restoration that we can experience is the new birth. And that occurs when we understand our sinfulness and Christ's substitution for us, and we trust him alone to pay for our sins. I like the way Wearsby expressed it. The future is your friend when Jesus is your savior. So the prayer here is, Lord, teach us, Lord, restore us. And then he prays, Lord, gladden us. In verses 14 and 15, O oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. 
Notice he uses the, word, the words days and years here. And again, they, they hearken back to verses 9 and 10. And again, it's an intended contrast. Notice the great difference. Earlier in verses 9 and 10, it is a life of sorrow under God's wrath. But here, it is a life of rejoicing under God's favor. Because those who experience God's work of restoration, they are the ones who find great joy. Because of God's mercy, it's possible for this great blessing of joy to be continued and not just be something occasional. God wants it to be something lasting in our lives, not just momentary. And then he also says we should pray, Lord, show us in verse 16. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. The prayer is twofold here. God, we want to see you work and we want our children to see your majesty and your honor. And these thoughts go together. As we see God working, it is his majesty on display. This is very much the way Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1. He prayed that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. That's part of Paul's praying for their spiritual eyesight like Moses does here. And we must pray for ourselves that God would show us, but also for the next generation. Young people in our homes, our churches, they must see the majesty and the honor of God. I know that so many of you long to have a ministry like that in the lives of children and young people. So pray this way for them. Pray that children and teenagers would see God as he truly is, as glorious and great and exalted. But then he offers a, a fifth way, a fifth request that we should pray, and it's, Lord, establish us, in verse 17. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Don't miss this. By God's grace in Christ, life, with all of its brevity and uncertainty and frailty, life can have meaning and significance. And this is remarkable. This is freeing, especially after what we read earlier in this psalm. There's another contrast here with what was mentioned previously. In contrast to all that was transitory that he talked about, through God there can be permanence. And this is found only in God. This psalm begins and ends with God, and that is a right perspective on life. Because all things are of him, through him, and to him. And God urges us to face the realities of life as we seek him in prayer. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.